Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And I'm Kevo. And this is Doctor Strange on MCU.html. Yeah. The Sorcerer Supreme. Not so supreme, though, frankly, in our opinion. The Master of the Mystic Arts. Not really the Master of much, if you ask me. A mean son of a bitch, bad stand-in for House, forced into an existing canon to make it work and appeal to a modern audience, and in the process erases all of the Asian out of the Asian mysticism? You forgot the part where he's clearly just meant to be a stand-in for Tony Stark now that we have less of him in the MCU. Okay, yeah, so let's take a step back and talk about this for a second. I think Doctor Strange might have been one of the most highly anticipated characters to make it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A few years before the Marvel Cinematic Universe began, Marvel began playing with a line of animated movies. There were several Hulk, there was a Doctor Strange, Iron Man, two Avengers called Ultimate Avengers, and... It was clear that they were trying to test the groundwork for possibly laying down the groundwork for the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it. I'll be honest, big fan of Doctor Strange, but the Doctor Strange animated movie, I fell asleep both times I tried to watch it, and I didn't love this one a whole lot more. Doctor Strange is a very visual character. He's actually a pretty nice guy who mostly just wants to help. He, sure, he's a little bit weird in that he's a mystic kind of way, but The character himself is actually benevolent, kind, he takes people in and he takes care of them. So I was really excited to see a very different version of the kind of Boy Scoutish good guy that Cap plays in getting a nice guy who's a master of the mystic arts, kind of funny, kind of a little bit weird, but you know, he's he's a genuinely benevolent spirit. Has he always been that, or did his origins also start in the place we see in the film? Because I definitely saw in my research of trying to understand more about Doctor Strange that a lot of people did expect him to be a dick from the start, and if he hasn't been that for a while, then I could see you wanting the different iteration of the character. Tony Stark in the comics is still kind of an asshole a lot of the time, so you would expect that to see in his film adaptation. Is he exclusively a Boy Scout in the comics? So Doctor Strange actually has almost verbatim the same backstory. He starts out as an egotistic asshole surgeon and ultimately loses the use of his hands and goes on this great quest to become a better person, but in the process actually becomes a better person. Whereas here, even as evidenced by Thor Ragnarok and Infinity War, while he has been humbled and does good, he still does very clearly have something of an attitude problem compared to the picture that you've painted of what you expected from the comics. Yeah, and I'm not saying that Doctor Strange is always the most kindly guy in the world. He's very odd. I'm working really hard not to describe him as strange. It's unfortunate. But he is genuinely kinder than this, which makes this difficult. One of the things about Tony Stark is Tony Stark is such a fucking good time. You know if you're with Tony Stark, you're going to have a great time. The idea I get from Stephen Strange is if 
you're with Stephen Strange, Stephen Strange is going to have a good time. And you know, I have to be honest, I wonder if part of it is the performer shining through. I like Robert Downey Jr. a lot as a person. I especially think during his time as playing Tony Stark, he has been mostly a positive figure as far as his celebrity, whereas Benedict Cumberbatch is far more controversial in his attitudes and the way that he reacts to fans and what they think of his performances. And I definitely think that's hard to separate from a character who is himself egotistical at the start. You know, I do think that once he goes through his transformation and becomes a sorcerer, that I do see a difference. But especially when you know that the person playing him does have such an attitude problem, it's hard to really feel a world of difference. Absolutely. For me, one of the big things that comes across is Benedict Cumberbatch is playing house. And I don't mean he's playing house and he's the dad. No, I mean he's playing the character house. The character house. Dr. House. He is barely, and that is one of the things I will get into. It like Whole scenes basically are like House and Cuddy, even though it's Christine Palmer and Stephen Strange. And the way they redo his backstory with the, I'm the only one who could have done my hands better. I just, uh, That's already overdone enough in, like, medical dramas, and I don't know. There's some amount of trying to make this superhero movie a medical drama, because there's, like, five different scenes that take place in a hospital. So, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure they knew what they were making with Doctor Strange, and I think that's definitely a factor as well. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, Doctor Strange is the first Marvel movie in a while that we're going to have to take a stance and say, this did ladies dirty. There are unfortunately only two women with names in this film. One of them is actually an Asian man in the comics who they changed over to a Celtic woman, not the singing group, in order to, I don't know, erase the Asians out of an Asian story, which... Don't get me wrong, the Marvel Universe is overrun with white saviors. We have Iron Fist, who is, of course, Danny Rand, and a white boy who is the only white boy who can do Kung Fu the greatest. And we have Doctor Strange, who takes on this Asian mysticism and, of course, becomes the greatest at it. So this is the first movie in a while where I just need to take a stance and say, problematic, problematic, problematic. Yeah... It's problematic. It's ultimately fairly hollow. You know, I don't hate this movie. I don't really exactly hate any MCU film, but I would certainly put this toward the bottom of the list for me, right down there with The Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk, that's exactly the film I was going to connect it with. The Incredible Hulk, this and all said and done, in retrospect, I guess Ant-Man, for one from each phase, are kind of the origin movies where I'm like, eh. Fine. Yeah, I can see that. I think I more enjoy Ant-Man for the threads that they picked up and carried in Ant-Man and the Wasp than I do enjoy Ant-Man by itself. But, you know, more to the point of what we are currently discussing. Ironically, in a film that introduced the time infinity gem, we don't want to get things too out of sequence. I guess there's not much else to do but the BTS on DRS.
Oh, I get it. I was like, what's the R? Yeah, the BTS. You know, Doctor Strange is, as we keep trying to avoid saying, rather strange. It is one of the many Marvel properties that they have been attempting to turn into a film for an incredibly long time. Going back as far as January 1986, there are scripts for Doctor Strange. Now, you might have noticed that that is an oddly specific date to give it. You know, it makes sense, too, because Doctor Strange appeared in the Hulk TV movies prior to this. So, along with the worst-looking Thor and Daredevil you've ever seen. So, it makes sense that they were still trying to push him in the 80s, but I just need to say 1986 is the big year of the comic. Watchmen... Daredevil Born Again, The Dark Knight, it's the big year of the comic. So I'd love to know why this was January 1986. Because that is the date on a script written by Back to the Future's Bob Gale that was rediscovered and reviewed back in 2004. So like, so many different points of time. Irony. Bob Gale, you say? That's really interesting, because Bob Gale would go on to have a very interesting relationship with Marvel Comics. He did what is considered one of the worst Daredevil arcs of all time, which Marvel to this day has never, ever recollected. And that was in 1999. And after that, he was part of what was known as the Spidey Brain Trust, five writers who were responsible for working together to publish Spider-Man as a weekly title. He was the first member to leave the Brain Trust, and the member of the Brain Trust with the least amount of material contributed. So it's shocking to hear, but not shocking to hear, that Bob Gale was attached to a Marvel project in 1986. I gotta tell you, he did not write a very good Doctor Strange movie. The reviewer was not very kind about it, and I was, you know, a little bit concerned that they were being too biased until I read a PDF of the script. Well, not all of it, because I certainly couldn't get through all of it. It involves Doctor Strange accident being caused because he chases a beautiful woman from a party, for one thing. As he is chasing her, he notices that she's slipped away from him and says, damn it, and then says to, and I'm not kidding, look it up, two gays in the doorway. Did you see a redhead go out? Gay replies, boy or girl, and after Strange's reaction says she just went out the front door. So that was the queer visibility that was written into the script. And the kind of sad irony is that's actually bizarrely positive queer representation for 1986. Am I wrong? Yeah. And you know what? It's still more queer representation than we've gotten in any Marvel movie. The only Marvel movie that comes close is Ragnarok has two queer women in it. And all of the references to their queerness were cut. Yeah. Like that's characters that clearly would have been gay knowing it was 1986 they probably would have been horribly stereotypically quaffed but that's something at least this woman would have turned out to have worked for dormammu part of why strange swerved and had his accident was to avoid a dormammu demon dog henchman covered in red hair that drooled slime so interestingly though like I do kind of like that something caused the accident apart from just him being a dick. In this movie, it's really mostly Strange's own fault that he crashes. The woman would have gone from being evil to joining Doctor Strange because he convinced her with the power of his dick before being murdered by Mordo, which he then begs and weeps like a little baby for forgiveness, saying, Strange, 
Please don't kill me. It was a mistake. I didn't mean to kill her, I swear. I didn't mean it. This would have been so much more uncomfortable than the film that we got. And it seems like the reviewer from 2004 disliked one of the few things that I did enjoy, where, like, a henchman mentions that they're going to miss Dynasty. That's the sort of meta humor that I love, but I guess we weren't really appreciating it 15 years ago. And what's funny is uh, Cresselius kind of has a moment like that yes. when Doctor Strange is like, strange, and he's like, who am I to say? And like, and he's calling him Mr. Doctor. I, I, which is so funny because you'd want to be like, that's stupid. But then the second you think about it, Pete Doctor, yeah. who works for Pixar, so like... Cresselius doesn't bother himself with how you spell your name. If anything, he's still being incredibly respectful that this opponent has a strange name, huh? but he's still calling him Mr. Doctor. Like, And I, I love that kind of humor. I guess we weren't really ready for it in March 2004. That's a lot. Definitely, if you're ever bored, look into reading this script. It's not good. He gives a bum $10 instead of a quarter so he can get himself a real bottle of whiskey, and that's supposed to be a moment that endears us to Doctor Strange. Another draft was written by Stan Lee and Repo Man's Alex Cox in 1989. That one went nowhere. Wes Craven signed a deal in 1992 to write and direct. That went nowhere. David S. Goyer wrote a script in 1995. He wrote the Blade films, the Nolan Batman films, Man of Steel, like all those. His went nowhere. There have been a lot of attempts to get this franchise going. And you know why? I can really tell you. I think it's because this is one of the few Stan Lee, Steve Ditko projects. Mm. Ditko's name is magic in the comic industry. And I'm not trying to take anything away from X's for Podcasts, which you guys should all check out if you want to hear some comic backstory material. But there are a few masters of form. Jack Kirby basically invented how we look at comics. And George Perez, for the most part, designed the physicality of characters on the page the way we know it today. And then there was Steve Ditko doing these crazy magic things over on Doctor Strange. And then you had Jim Steranko, the master of style over on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. So it's really, really, this is one of those projects everybody wanted to be a part of. It does not shock me that there was a list of people in the background. And that even tracks as late as going into production on this film, from what I have read, honestly. Director Scott Derrickson said that he was told Doctor Strange is the MCU property that the most people were vying to be attached to and to get their hands on, which is why he himself went on a very lengthy campaign to get the job. He wrote a 12-page scene based on Doctor Strange The Oath, which is not just essentially, literally, the scene that you saw in the film, but I'll get back to that. He brought in his own concept art and storyboards from professional artists and an animatic, which he presented in a 90-minute pitch, and all of this cost him what he described as an obnoxious amount of his own money to try and get this job. And after eight meetings, not only did Marvel hire him, they literally bought the 12-page scene, and that is how it became one of the film's main set pieces. Like, that scene that we saw is part of the pitch that this director did to get the job of Doctor Strange. I think one of the things that blows my mind the most about that is, I, and I'm trying to find like a, a gentle way to put it, 
but it sounds like Marvel was like, yes, do this thing that doesn't feel too much like Doctor Strange. I don't know. This is the one where I feel the movie is the furthest off from the source material. Not that that really affects my appreciation of the film. I even feel like most of the film doesn't necessarily match the tone of that 12-page scene. So what they bought, what they literally bought to base this film on, I don't ultimately know that we got everything that this beautifully crafted, hard-worked-on scene suggested we were going to get. No offense, but I wonder if part of the issue is the background of the director and his co-writer that he brought with him to this project their experience is actually in horror. They produced the 2012 film Sinister, as well as its sequel. The director also wrote and directed Hellraiser Inferno in 2000 and The Exorcism of Emily Rose in 2005. Like, a lot of their experience is more in horror than anything else, and I don't think that that jibes with what Doctor Strange is. I... You know, <clears throat> okay, kind of, kind of. There's a really weird period in time at Marvel that people try not to discuss that comes during the Marvel comic crash of the early 90s. It was called The Rise of the Midnight Suns, and everything was gothy, and it was a huge response to the enormous success of the gothic horror realism of DC's Vertigo line, where Hellblazer and Sandman and Doom Patrol were all selling huge numbers, being these creepy, disturbing books. And there were a number of titles at Marvel that became extreme with horror. Those books were Morbius, Doctor Strange, and Warren Ellis's run on Hellstorm and Doctor Druid. Doctor Druid being kind of like Marvel's backup Doctor Strange, created by the same people, just in case Doctor Strange was busy that month. So, you know, it's kind of a balance. It's funny that you bring up The Oath earlier because The Oath was actually a turning point for Marvel as a company. After The Oath, they decided that Magic at Marvel had to get more interesting again. And they decided to kind of move in the opposite direction of that arc and go for a more traditional sense of magic. In The Oath, somebody just points their fingers like a gun and goes bang and someone gets shot. So it's so interesting that the comic franchise went the opposite direction after that came out and that's what they leaned into for the film but to get back to the horror thing it's an element of dr strange's history but by no means would i say it's his defining note okay and that's all good to know absolutely scott derrickson also wrote urban legends final cut by the way i just wanted to mention that because i think that is the first time i can ever remember being only five minutes into a movie and saying, oh, that guy's the murderer, and being completely right. No offense to him, I still enjoyed the movie and I liked it more than the other one. I think the twist is that there's a twin, which is also one of the first times that I ever saw that and the first time I ever cringed at it. I can't watch movies where Rebecca Gayhart kills people. No, that's the first one. The second one is she's not the killer. The only one who returns for the second one is Loretta Devine. Not to tangent about urban legend for no reason. Right? Absolutely. If you ever get a chance, though, you should watch Dead Like Me. Yes, yes you should. His co-writer, by the way, is C. Robert Cargill. They're currently working on a film adaptation of the Deus Ex video games, so that's pretty cool for them. But Marvel did not want Derrickson splitting his focus too much between directing and writing, and they frankly didn't want Cargill to write it solo for whatever reason. So they also brought in writer John Spates, 
who has a very interesting history, not to go too far off on a tangent, but he wrote the script for Passengers starring Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence, and it was in 2007 on the blacklist of unproduced high-value screenplays, and it took, like, that long for it to finally get picked up and produced, which is really funny to think it lingered for 10 years. It's funny the way that projects can work out like that. He was also commissioned directly by Scott Free, Ridley Scott's production company, to write the next two prequels of Alien back in the day, which ultimately merged into one project of Prometheus that was ultimately revised by Damon Lindelof. Anybody who knows me knows my unusual relationship with the Alien franchise. I believe you can catch me on a previous episode of Third Time's a Charm, where Chris and I joined Mike for a terrible journey into Alien 3. I love Prometheus if I don't think about it too hard. And that's completely fair. Cinematographer, I mentioned actually the one for this film in two episodes already. Same cinematographer as for Guardians of the Galaxy and Age of Ultron. And who will be returning this week, actually, the week that this episode goes up, for Captain Marvel. So that's going to be pretty cool to see his work again soon. Yes, she can! Yes, she really can. And the only person to touch on still, I'll try not to gush too much about him, but... Michael Giacchino is the fantastic composer on this film. I said in Ant-Man that Christoph Beck is the composer for the two Bug films. It's actually Giacchino who does the score for both Doctor Strange and the Spider-Man films. If you've seen Lost, you know his work. I actually only just learned in doing the research for this episode that he got his start in video game music, and one of his very first jobs was the score for the Gargoyles Sega Genesis video game, and that it was his work in video game music on projects such as the first Medal of Honor games, as well as the first three Call of Duty games, that drew the attention of J.J. Abrams, who asked him to come in and do the score for Alias, which drew the attention of director Brad Bird, who asked him to come in and do the music for The Incredibles. So this guy has just sort of been discovered by all the right people at all the right times, and I really enjoy his work, so I'm happy for him. He also, it's pretty notable, has a go-bag. A go-bag being a Grammy, Oscar, BAFTA, Emmy, and a Golden Globe. Most of those were for his work on Up, so he pretty much just swept one year, but the Emmy obviously wasn't for Up. It was for his work on the pilot of Lost, so that's pretty cool. That's a major award winner. He is just a Tony away from having everything. Bedgot? Bedgot. Betgot, yeah. And I think it's really fascinating because you don't even realize how many films he's done. The list of films, it's two different Mission Impossibles. It's the Star Treks by J.J. Abrams, which if you're a Star Trek fan, I don't know how you can really... The score to Coco. I just, this guy gets to do everything. Ratatouille, which had a brilliant score. And the Jurassic World franchise. He's the composer on that right now, which, you know, love it or hate it, is a major motion picture franchise. And he's the sound behind it. This episode has way too many connections to Chris Pratt. We'll deal with that next week. So, I guess the question is, is there anything else behind the scenes that went into creating Doctor Strange? Nah, I got to go on for two minutes about Giacchino, and I get to go on a little bit more about him again in the future. That's pretty much it. I guess after that long and winding road, now we just discuss what we think of the actual film that was made. But first, I have to vent some irritation at something. We were good sports about Wasp, despite naming the Avengers and being one of the longest-serving Avengers, not being in Avengers. We were 
mostly good-natured about my precious, precious Carol not being included in Age of Ultron. I was humongously patient waiting for Hope to become the Wasp in Ant-Man and the Wasp. I have put up with one woman on each super team to then become two women on each super team. The first Avengers only has Black Widow. The second Avengers has Black Widow and Scarlet Witch. The first Guardians only has Gamora. The second Guardians has Gamora and Mantis. And yes, I do appreciate Maria Hill and Nebula hanging in there. And sure, there's Valkyrie and there's Sith. But at the end of the day, I think I just named nearly every powered character that is a woman in the Marvel Universe. Meanwhile, if you were asked to make that same list for men, there would be no struggle as you had just over the last few seconds trying to name every woman almost. So I guess what I'm getting to is there is a character that they've withheld from Doctor Strange for no good reason. Clea is Doctor Strange's love interest, and she's so connected to his canon. She's so much more than his love interest. In many ways, she's nearly his mystical equal. She is a phenomenal character with an incredible history, a storied history. And they chose not to include her for no discernible reason. Yeah, the only discernible reason that there seems to be that was given at all about why this character wouldn't be involved is that they didn't want to put in a female character that they couldn't do anything with because I suppose they had a place for Doc Strange in Infinity War but not really anyone else which is why Wong just sort of swans off within the first five minutes but like still you know I haven't mentioned this to you before because I wanted to surprise you with it but in the 2004 review of that script the reviewer even mentioned no Clea though so like Even that reviewer in 2004 reviewing a 1986 script who, you know, there were were a few comments they even made in the review where I was like, I know more about Doc Strange than you. But this person was able to say, but where's Clea? Leaving out Clea is such an offense to not just the women of the Marvel Universe, but the men who have worked on the series in the past. She is... (sighs) All right, I'm done being... I'll never be done being angry, but... I'm done being angry because I have a whole lot more rage I have to direct to the erasure of the Asian characters as well as a million other things. And anything else that I could say about Clea really is more a criticism of Christine Palmer in this film, who I don't want to criticize, but I ultimately feel more justified criticizing after watching the film again than I would of Sharon Carter after watching Civil War. Watching Civil War again made me go, wow, I'm not fair to Sharon Carter. Watching Doctor Strange again made me go, wow, they're not fair to Christine Palmer. I have to be real. The first time I watched this movie, I was so angry she wasn't Clea that I didn't really appreciate her. Ultimately, in the rewatch, I genuinely believe she kind of carries parts of the film. Her character is kind, warm, intelligent, capable, supportive, but no bullshit. And I loved that. I'm only stopping you to say, do we have anything to say about the opening scene, the opening battle, or do we want to just jump right into the surgery scene? I like the opening battle. It was fun, and I teared up when I saw the new Marvel Studios logo. That's all I have to say about the opening before jumping straight into Stephen Strange and his actual life. 
My actual note is I'm impressed by the Ancient One fight, but I didn't need it to be that long. Ultimately, we agree. This movie is beautiful to look at. It is interesting the way they utilized Ditko and the many artists who would come to work on the series over time's influence, including a lot of his hand gestures. Doctor Strange was always very famous for what looked like Spider-Man thwip hands because that's how he would summon things with hand gestures. And they did a really beautiful job capturing that right away. But there's no real plot. So a lot of these scenes are going to get, it was pretty. I think really good evidence of how mismanaged this film is came to me when I clocked in exactly how long it was from when we meet Stephen Strange to when that whole hospital scene where he's doing these surgeries and talking to Christine. It was almost six full minutes of the entire film. And when I looked at that, I was like, what the frig are we spending all of this time talking about surgery? Like, that's how quickly you should have told us that Stephen Strange is talented, pompous, and rich. I didn't need that much of the film to give me all of that information. It dragged. It also made me feel like the ways they're trying to tell me that Doctor Strange is so extreme were kind of boring. I'm joked to be the Nicopedia on now and again because of the music things I know. But I don't think Doctor Strange's encyclopedic knowledge of music did anything for me. I actually kind of was like, I don't think this guy would like music. Maybe I missed it early in the film, but it's like halfway through when Wong is impressed because he read one book overnight and he goes, oh, I have a photographic memory. And I was like, wait, did they say that at any point? I got that he's super smart and that he picks things up fast, but if that's what they were trying to establish at the start of the film to help us better understand that he's really good at learning, it didn't come across. I wasn't impressed by any of that. It was kind of cool, but it feels like they didn't tell us the things we needed to know about this character in the right ways, in the right order. They did nothing to make us sympathize with him whatsoever before his accident. If anything, I'm kind of like, you're a dick and you weren't paying attention. You are rude about charity. You're rude about helping people. At the very least, before Tony Stark got kidnapped, we saw him being nice to the soldiers that he was with. That was so important to humanize him, even though we can tell he's a smarmy, pompous asshole. Stephen Strange is just a smarmy, pompous asshole. No sympathy. He literally refused to work in the emergency room because there's no glory in saving lives. We're even given an MCU-specific example that is supposed to make us dislike him one of the offers that he gets on that phone call before the crash is about a wounded soldier who was hurt in the line of combat who from all the context clues is roadie and he's like nah i don't want to work on that he literally denies helping one of our friends right before he gets in that accident why would we like be sad i guess i don't ever want to see a human being in pain but beyond common empathy and I actually do think one of the things that I want to touch on is I actually found the car accident itself kind of Transformers-ishly over the top. Mm-hmm. It was like a Michael Bay thing, the way that car just keeps flipping and falling and flipping and falling. At a certain point, I was like, I would actually be much more okay with it if he was just dead now. Like, this is too ex- – because the only thing he walks away with is crippled hands. Yeah, that's a really important point, too. Literally, the only thing about him that was so permanently damaged was his hands. And I'm sad for him, and I'm sad that he lost this talent that he had. But Christine makes the excellent point of 
the rest of you survived. We're supposed to feel sorry for the fact that he wastes all of his money trying to fix his hands? Well, he had all of that money, and he probably could have taught or done something better with his life. But he is so stubborn about this pursuit that he throws away his entire life to try and get his hands back so he can be a surgeon again, which is something we as the viewers ultimately know he is going to abandon anyway when he becomes a sorcerer. Even if you don't know the mythos of Doctor Strange, you kind of have to figure once he gets superpowers, that's what his life is going to be about. So watching him do all of these things and have these extreme reactions, it's just a waste of our time, ultimately. And if for no other reason, you only have two hours to take this dick and completely make us care about him. One of the things that we got right away from Tony Stark was that he would not let them do anything to Jensen. That was so important to him. And I don't get that from Doctor Strange. Even when the movie starts to turn and Doctor Strange is like, I have to do what's right for the world. It actually kind of comes off more like, fine. And not like, I want to see humanity survive. It comes off much more like, fine, I'll fucking do this for you people. And it's like, oh my god, poor rich white boy. Your life is so fucking hard. There are people around you who would do anything for the chance to help the world. And you're kind of like, ugh, I'll do it if I have to. I don't have much else to say about the first half hour of this film before he meets the Ancient One and gets powers. One of the things that I read was that they were trying to subvert a romance trope with Christine by making them former lovers, but it sort of feels like they decided to do that late in the film because if they never bang again, I love it. I love their dynamic. I love their friendship. It's cute. It's wonderful. I love his affection for her. If they're just going to bang again, this movie just got even stupider. Yeah, because it doesn't come off like delayed gratification in making them wait. It comes off like you just couldn't commit to the bit. Yeah, like everything about their embraces and their interaction throughout the film, especially when he says goodbye to her after like right before he goes off and faces Caecilius for the final battle like it's so sexually charged why does everything with you straight people have to be about sex oh my god like we couldn't just have an adult male and female friendship ever and I think one of the things that makes me the angriest is there's only one other woman in the entire movie so there's no other female friendship to be had yeah and let's just dive right into that then the ancient one go for it well, first I want to say the only Latino representation in this entire film is Benjamin Bratt being in it for two seconds. Yeah. We discover that Benjamin Bratt was able to come back from just a severe and irreparable body, and Doctor Strange finds him, and the guy's like, yeah, you gotta go to these mountains. And so he goes off to Kathmandu, and he gets to the Ancient One. Baron Mordo's like, I'll show you the place. And Ancient One's like, look at all the magic I can do. And then it's like, nah, get out. And Strange is like, no, I'm gonna wait till you love me. Which it turns out to be like four hours. I made this movie better in my head, I swear to God, because I thought he like camped out on that doorstep for weeks to prove his dedication and be let back in. But like, it's ultimately six fucking hours. And I'm like, wow, the Ancient One is really, really, really fickle. 
Charlotte had to work a whole lot harder to convert to Judaism in Sex in the City. Yes, you're making a joke, but that's actually literally true. And it just really annoyed me when I got to it. I'm like, how did I make this movie better than you in my head retroactively? And I think one of the things that I need to just take a pause, The Ancient One was from 1960... Strange, I think it was 67? I could be mistaken. But The Ancient One was always an older Asian man? So that all of a sudden, one day, they just decide he's going to be a white woman. It just never sat right with people. There was a little too much Asian erasure here, and they didn't make it any better by not deciding to make, for instance, Iron Fist of Asian descent. And these things matter. Representation matters. If you're going to showcase a culture, you should showcase the members of that culture. And I... Just as much as I love Matilda, as much as I love her, right? Matilda's so wonderful. She's so great. She, I was like, who the fuck is Matilda? I figured out that that's why your face went like that. I was like, I gotta, (laughs) as much as I love Tilda, she didn't belong in this role in this film. She also didn't belong in the Constantine movie that never should have happened, but that's an unrelated story. I do have to say that I like her performance and... In wanting to promote diversity and make the Ancient One female, they feared that making the Ancient One an Asian female was going to conjure up, like, dragon lady tropes. Which, sure, but then you work to make sure that you aren't doing that. Inherently, hiring an Asian woman to be a mystic is not necessarily going to produce a dragon lady cliche you then work to make sure you don't do it a friend came to me recently talking about a writing project that he wanted to do where he was going to have a dead lover backstory and i said to him it's not that you can't do something like that but people are so much more aware of fridging and the problematic nature of that trope you need to be aware of people who did things like that poorly and try and do it better and this was just very clearly half-assed ultimately it's wonderful though that they did keep in wong wong is such a central part of the doctor strange mythos he is just as important as clea and wong is beloved so it's really great that he showed up here and had a wonderful personality i think wong's entrance is kind of the point at which the movie takes a bit of an uptick but immediately Doctor Strange is too good at everything, and it's almost boring how quickly the movie progresses. Yes, you're not incorrect. It is like within five to ten minutes of him even starting his training that he is suddenly creating portals to steal forbidden books. And it's a lot. It's a lot to believe. One time someone told me that a friend of theirs couldn't get into Gilmore Girls or Veronica Mars because they were both a little too quick and a little too smart about everything. And... I've often said he wouldn't feel that way if they were men, because if they were men, they'd be House or Tony Stark or Doctor Strange. And I do think one of the most annoying things is not only does Strange quickly get smart, but he also has so much luck. The one book he randomly grabs is the one book that Cresselius stole the pages from Uh. that indicate the eternal life thing. And... and, uh. And, like, not only does he immediately figure out how to work the Eye of Agamotto, but the very second thing that he does with the Eye of Agamotto is 
try and figure out what spell was stolen from this forbidden book. Like, buddy, there's so much magic stuff that they keep saying you clearly have not gotten yet. Why are you trying to, like, do you not realize that magic could fold all of reality despite the fact that they've told you that repeatedly? How do you not think that you could potentially be putting people in danger? Why do you have to be told that as an adult man? He's an adult man, and I feel like some of the things that he does, Peter Parker would call ridiculous after Homecoming. I completely agree, and it does not help that I can't quite figure out how the whole Cresilius and his zealots attack happens. Like, I feel like that all moves too quickly. It actually really specifically does. Once Caecilius attacks, there are very few breaks in the story ever, ever again. There's a five-minute slowdown when he tells Doctor Strange his whole evil plan. There's a five-minute slowdown after Christine saves his life in surgery and he sort of fills her in on what's been going on in his life. But there's, and then there's the five minute slowdown when the Ancient One dies. But other than that, from the moment Caecilius attacks to the end of the movie, it is pretty continuous, nonstop battle. And it doesn't exactly feel like there's enough stuff that came between him discovering Cartouche and Caecilius's attack to justify most of the action that we see. And because so much of it is portals and the sling rings and magic... Because so much of it is that. He's throwing people through portals. He's just sort of whip-snapping people. It's really beautiful, but there's not a lot to talk about. It's distracting fun that distracts you from the fact that the plot of the film did not do much to justify what is happening right now. After Doctor Strange gets his beautiful, wonderful magical cloak that I love so much, we get that astral scene that brings Christine back. If it weren't for this scene, where we see her be amazing and save his life and immediately adapt to the craziness that is facing her because that's really what she does she immediately adapts and it's beautiful and it's awesome this was the scene that made me fall in love with her character and to really exemplify why i love rachel mcadam's performance and why i love christine as a character the last moment that we see of her before dr strange storms off through his portal when the mop falls and she screams, that was not scripted. That was a mop fell behind Rachel McAdams and she screamed. And Scott Derrickson loved so much that she stayed in character for that moment that he kept it in the film. It's a perfect metaphor for the fact that most of what we love about Christine is mostly just happy accidents. She's not treated as well as she should in this film, but she really gives her all with everything that she does. Kevin Feige said that they focused on Christine rather than having a mystical character like Clea in the film because they wanted someone that would ground Strange back to what his original life was. And I think that Christine does succeed in that, in reminding us of the real world that's still existing around all of this mystical. But I think she's in like 10 minutes of screen time of the entire film. Even if you have a longer lasting imprint on the film than that, that's just not, it's not a lot. And as the only genuinely I started originally female female character in the movie, that's, there should have, what is there even to say? Yeah, I agree. Which brings us to Ancient One is secretly evil this whole time reveal, and she's secretly empowered by Dormammu. I need to take a second. I know Dormammu has been mentioned up to this point, and I know that Dormammu is hinted at visually in one sequence 
But Dormammu as the actual bad guy of this film comes out of no fucking where more than halfway through the movie. Like two-thirds of the way through the movie, Dormammu is the bad guy. And it kind of reminds me of Final Fantasy IX when all of a sudden they're like, oh, nope, we defeated Kuja, time to fight God. And that's how I feel about this. I feel really blindsided that Dormammu is the ultimate bad guy of this film. I'm going to be real. Call me a pragmatist, but I don't really feel there is an actual villain of this movie exactly. I think the Ancient One is flawed in using dark magic to prolong her own life, but I don't think that makes her evil or a villain. I think that Kaecilius was deceived into believing in Dormammu, but I think that everything that he presents about what he wants to do is from a genuine place of good. He was just deluded. I think that Dormammu is too big a force and ancient evil for us to consider Dormammu the quote-unquote villain. In fact, nothing that Dormammu is doing is actually an active villain role other than what his express existence is, which is anti-life. He's let in to our plane of existence, but it's not like he was trying to incur. He just is constantly in the state of trying to incur. So I really feel like there's no true villain in this movie in some ways, and I think that might be part of the problem I have with it. Well, I mean, Caecilius murders a lot of people. Well, yeah, no, I know. That's, that's, yeah, but he's also super duper weak and... His cause is ultimately flawed in ways that he himself does not understand, as opposed to many villains who specifically want to hurt everyone, you know? I mean, I guess what I'm hearing is you're like, it wasn't Anakin's fault because the Emperor misled him, but at the same time, he knows he's using dark magic to murder people. And I just feel like that does make him the de facto bad guy of the movie. I think Anakin is a pretty good comparison. I think that was a really good way to put it. I still think that Kaecilius is a little bit... I don't know if I mean dumber or smarter than Anakin, because they're both pretty dumb. And I think a lot of my perspective on Anakin also has to do with Hayden Christensen. Hmm. I'll come back to this one. So after the Ancient One is deposed... And we get our Stamio in the appearance of Stan Lee sitting on a bus. Hey, Stan. The Ancient One shows up to defend Mordo and Strange and dies at the hands of Caecilius. And then it drags on forever. Which, yeah, literally, in a film where the climax is about a time loop, it drags on forever. That was a pretty funny way of putting it. You know, we were sitting watching this movie, and I saw that it was about an hour and a half in, and I knew that it was about an hour and 50, 55 minute movie, and I was like, shit, there must be something like wrong with, with the timestamp or the runtime that I got. There isn't, there isn't any time at all to wrap up this movie, but they found a way to not only wrap up the movie, but replay a bunch of the scenes from the end multiple times yeah caecilius attacks hong kong and the sorcerers defend it and they keep trying to rewind time to undo stuff they i don't know other than the fact that this scene ultimately is going to be hugely important for endgame evidently i just don't know that i care by the end of the movie my notes started saying things like i'm really bored yeah, you know, it's stuff like in the denouement of the film, Wong just offhandedly 
confirming that the Eye of Agamotto is an Infinity Stone. And when Doc Strange says, what? He's like, don't worry about it. Like, that's the epitome of this film to me. You concealed a lot of really interesting and important information inside of it, but you didn't really, like, justify any of the trappings that you put around the stuff that we really need. I do like Doctor Strange a lot as a hero by the end of the film. I enjoy his appearances in Thor Ragnarok and Infinity War a lot more than I enjoy him in most of his own film, honestly. I like the place that he comes to. A lot of this movie, especially the first full half hour of it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me. And I don't know that it was necessarily worth all of that to get the character of Doctor Strange and have him be able to be in the MCU at large. I agree. By the end of the film, I am, I guess, most interested in the tags. I don't think there's really any ending of the movie other than like a really cool pose. But Cassilius is defeated. They're pulled into the darkness. Day is saved. Ancient One's dead. Doctor Strange is now Sorcerer Supreme. He's got the Eye of Agamotto. He's got the cloak. He's got the books of Vishanti. Everything's really happy. That's Vishanti, not Ashanti. And I just was like, I don't know what I just watched for two hours. I have to say, though, I'm not even engaged in the credit sequences. We didn't really talk much about him because, you know, I feel bad, but I'm not the biggest Mordo fan. I don't enjoy kind of super weak Boy Scoutish characters like that, and I even less enjoy when their worldview is shattered. They turn into giant, horrible monsters that do things like horribly cripple someone by taking away their magic by saying that the world just has too many sorcerers. You're now part of the problem, buddy, and I think it's kind of ironic that a character who seems to be going on that path that we could potentially follow into a Doctor Strange sequel is played by the guy who played the operative in Serenity, who again is a character who somehow thought that his brutish manner of correcting the flaws of the world were justified because he was making the world better, and frankly, ultimately, will probably just be shown the error of his ways and... You know, like a sad man baby saying that he was used and he didn't mean it. So I guess ultimately we're going to just come right back around to that interpretation of Mordo either way. I have to agree. Yeah. I think one of the things that made this movie end off on the weirdest note was the Thor appearance. Yeah, that inclusion, it reminds me of the scene from the end of the credits of ant-man where we saw literally just straight up footage taken from civil war i think that's what the scene is between doc strange and thor you made the important point though of the last time that we saw thor we were under the impression that loki was about to do something evil we weren't really sure what thor was up to following civil war so to see him suddenly here talking about looking for his father talking about his brother we're like the fuck did we miss and the fact is it is a full year from doctor strange before thor ragnarok came out i guess that's really all i got to say on doctor strange kevo do you have anything else on the good doctor you know i you know like i keep saying i don't hate this movie i really wonder what the movie would have been like if they had gone with a different actor honestly benedict cumberbatch was the first choice he was the one who was offered the role first He wasn't sure if he could commit due to theater commitments he'd already made, and Joaquin Phoenix was offered 
the role second, but turned it down before Benedict Cumberbatch ultimately came back and said yes. But uh, looking at the list of actors that we could have had instead, there's Oscar Isaacs, there's Ewan McGregor, there's Patrick Dempsey was lobbying to play Doctor Strange at one point, like... And it seems weird, but at least they're nicer guys, and I wonder if that would have made me like the character more. Benedict, if you want to come at me, you totally can, but I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those things. Now he plays the role, and it's what we're stuck with. I'm just glad it didn't go to Jared Leto or Joaquin Phoenix, who are kind of famously problematic. At least it's a minorly problematic guy. Yeah, he's only problematic for his attitude. He hasn't really, like, done anything horribly horrible that i've seen he's just not great to his fans and i don't like that in this universe in a universe where so many of the actors are so positive and so grateful to their fandom and that brings us to guardians 2 i think we've talked extensively about our thoughts on guardians as a franchise I remember thinking that Guardians 2 is a piss-poor rehash of Guardians 1 with more daddy issues, and I really remember kind of laughing at it in the theater. I might also remember you laughing at it in the theater. Yeah, I mean, I perhaps wouldn't use the same somewhat savage adjectives, but I also don't disagree with your core premise, which is... Guardians 2 was ultimately just rehashing all the things everybody liked about Guardians 1, and that's not enough to build a film around. I also felt that the movie watches like an apology to an abuser in the treatment of Yondu, who was very clearly abusive in the first movie and was willing to steal an Infinity Stone, and now it's just like, nope, he did the best he could as a dad, and it just does not sit with me. I think an issue is that James Gunn was trying to craft a narrative in Guardians all unto itself that's a little bit hard to follow when it is a smaller piece of a larger universe. And I think that tracks with a lot of the reading that I have done that said a lot of his issues with making the films were mandates from Marvel Studios. And I understand that that's a difficult situation to work under, but when you agree to a job, you agree to a job. And anyone who's making an MCU film, you're agreeing to be part of a much larger project than yourself. And no one's saying that you can't put in pet narratives that are important to you, but Guardians of the Galaxy is not its own Star Wars franchise. It's one part of the Marvel Cinematic. I don't think I could have said it better. So, Kevo, until we get to Guardian That Galaxy, I don't think I could have said it better. So, Kevo, until we get to Guardian... I don't know why I can't say guarding. Kevo, please just tell me where people can find you. Well, if you're Benedict Cumberbatch, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or you can check out some of the amazing comic work that I, my team, and this handsome guy standing next to me have done on our own website, KidRideComics.com which features superhero stories involving diverse cast of characters. Lots of really cool stuff. Nico, where can they find you? You guys can check me out on X's for Podcast with Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, and our best friend Kyle, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise. Don't forget, there's also Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend Chris, where we talk about the Now That's What I Call Musics. Don't forget to check out the Patreon, 
for Cage Club and contribute money and keep this badass thing going. Or you could look at me on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay. Well, sure was strange. Thwip, thwip. <laughs>